Going presently through the flying hour. This is the Gargsville Podcast with your host, Gargs Allard. Dateline Gargsville, March 12, 2021. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Gargsville Podcast. This is Gargs Allard. How's everyone doing out there? I hope well. If not, perhaps we can lift each other up just a little bit. Please send your comments and or questions pertaining to anything on this episode or any other episode to gargsallard at gmail.com, G-A-R-G-S-A-L-L-A-R-D at gmail.com. I hated when I used to go to school and at the beginning of the year, they would mispronounce my name and they say a lard as if I was just a bunch of lard. I've become more like that as I've gotten older and gained the weight. Anyway, I'd love to hear from you. Today we have author Brenda Schaff and her mother, artist Anna Johansson, on our show to talk about their upcoming release and third volume of their Sita's Fire trilogy called Destroyer of Sorrow. I really like that title because if there's anything this world can use destroying, I would think that sorrow would be on or near the top of my list. But I digress. The book is due out in April and is a wonderful read, spiritually uplifting, if I dare say, and I just said it. You can find out more about it and everything they have to offer on their website, sitasfire.com. And today we get to hear my interview with this dynamic duo. You know, when somebody asks me if I've got the time, I often answer no. Time has me. I'm 56 years old and... I thought I'd be somebody by now. (laughs) But on this show and everyday life as well, I hope that we can all get a little less shackled from the influence of time by realization of our true natures beyond time. You know, anytime I have a disagreement with somebody and it's going nowhere, I like to say, you know, it's really hard having a conversation with you considering I'm obviously more intelligent and more sincere than you are. I find that generally goes over very well and actually seems to touch their heart, as a matter of fact. And we come away with a greater appreciation of each other. Of course, I'm kidding. I've got a lot of work to do on so many different levels. I've got so far to go. I've come a certain ways and I have to just keep on going. Here's a little health update for you. When I returned from being on the road in late July of 2019, and I'm going to divulge a little secret to you, I weighed 315 pounds. Count them. And I was not feeling at all well. How did I get to that state? Well, it happened gradually over time. It had to do with eating a lot of delicious food. I will give you that. It also had to do with getting a knee injury and re-injuring it about three times over uh, a span of a a few years. And then uh, my sleep apnea got out of control and I didn't want to use the CPAP in the middle of the night. I would throw it. And when you have sleep apnea, what happens is you don't get enough oxygen and it kind of perpetuates itself. You start uh, releasing more stress hormone. It's harder to lose weight. And 
Next thing you know, you're nodding out about 100 times a day. Imagine doing that while you're driving. It's not a good situation. And at some point, you have a stroke and you become compromised or on to your next body. So I had to do something to stop that. And I finally forced myself to use the CPAP. And it started having a positive effect. You know, frankly, I got a little momentum going. And I've been on Weight Watchers since last December. Kind of on and off, I've been on Weight Watchers. And I got down to 272 pounds as of about 10 days ago. So that's pretty good, right? What is 15 plus 28? I lost 43 pounds in the span of about a year and a half or something along those lines. Maybe a little bit more. Full disclosure, I am a supplement freak. I take about 30 whole food natural supplements a day in a vain attempt, in vain in more ways than one, to live forever. Of course, I have been living forever and will continue to do so. Just this body, the existence in this body is but a little blip on the screen of existence. My plan is to lose about five pounds a month until I'm down to about 175 pounds. So I get another 100 pounds to go. Wish me well. However, now uh, I've gained two pounds. I've kind of lost my momentum a little bit. I haven't gone to the gym in probably about a week. So I have to get my act back together. And I'm just letting everybody know that I plan to do that. Because if I don't, it's not going to be good. I got my blood pressure down to almost normal levels. I got my sugar, my blood sugar down, my A1C to normal levels. And I'm feeling really good. I've been hitting the weights. I've been exercising. I've been going in the sauna. I've been going in the cold pool, et cetera, et cetera. But just the last week or so, I've been kind of uh, in a bit of a funk. So I'm hoping to defunk myself. And I'll let you know about my progress next week on my next show. But as a great Ian Anderson once said, I don't want to be a fat man. People will think that I am just good fun. Talking about being fat, uh, the other day I was on the phone and somebody had me on hold for a while. And when he got out back on the phone, he said, sorry about your weight. And I said, I am too. I weigh 272 pounds, dude. He laughed and he said, I got you beat, bro. <laughs> So that was cool. You know, it's 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 great sometimes. I, I like to hang around people who are way more than me, so I feel thin. And I, I like to hang around people who are older than me, so I feel young. I think at least I'm starting to recognize my patterns. And as one Black Sabbath song once said, it still says, if you listen to the record, got to see yourself in others' eyes. It's wise. So I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to see myself in other people's eyes. And I'm trying to take a good, hard look at myself and be self-introspective. And I think it's easier for me to do that than to have someone else come and point out uh, my faults. Because I get on, on the defensive, just like when I'm at the gym exercising, I'm going through the line doing different various weights, different weight machines, and somebody comes up to me. And, uh, you know, look, I'm like I said before, I'm 56 years old. And some 20-year-old kid comes up to me and says, you can do it three more. 
I just close my eyes and I try to ignore them. I don't want anyone in my face. I don't need any kind of encouragement. I'm all grown up. I know what I have to do. I'll keep my headphones on. I'll listen to my Bob Dylan music or Leonard Cohen or the Beatles or Fountains of Wayne or Bell and Sebastian or whoever I I happen to be listening to, Blondie, some podcast. I don't want somebody coming up to me, putting pressure on me. I don't need pressure. Thank you very much. You know, we have a Cox security system, which we had signed a two-year contract for that we later came to regret because of the high cost. It's due up in uh, at the end of this month, March. So a Cox rep called me today and seemed to have a stern voice at the beginning as if to put me on the defensive. And I answered with a self-deprecating joke to try to diffuse the resolve of her tactics. And I got her to laugh, which was cool. And then she said that the call was being recorded. And I answered that I was taking extensive notes on the call and that I had an appointment in three minutes. So would she please get to the point, you know, to kind of like put her on her heels a little bit, because I knew by the tone of her voice that she was about to try to pressure me into something. And as I just said before, I don't like pressure. She then explained to me that she could lock me into a good deal if we signed another two-year agreement. Now, we've been waiting for uh, the better part of the last year to get out of this agreement. Uh, She said, otherwise, please be advised that they reserve the right to charge us more after March 31st. So I responded by saying that I'm going to explore my options, but please be advised that if they don't lower the price and also allow us to pay on a month-to-month basis without a contract, we will cancel their service altogether. That showed her. I hope. I kind of doubt. Okay, so we're going to get to Brenda and Anna very soon. I promise you. But first, I'm going to indulge myself. I'm going to read a little poem I wrote. It's called have some soup. Are you ready? It kind of goes along with the theme that I've been talking about on this excuse for a monologue. I'm working toward things, but my time is now. For soon enough, we'll all be dead anyhow. He had a hard on for me, but I didn't know why. Perhaps he harbored envy, but I can't identify. Kill him with kindness, dear old dad always said. Then hide around the corner, hit him with a two-by-four in the head. I was falling asleep, and then I woke up. But as for the woke, I'll put a quarter in their cup. Fascism to the right of me, fascism to my left. I had some rice and dal, but twas hard to digest. I scratched an itch, then I massaged my head. Got ready for dream time. Some REM and went to bed. Thank you very much. One more point before we get to the interview is I've gotten to a stage in my life, thank God, that it's best for my mental health not to try to impress anyone. And my realization is that when I talk to somebody and they say something that they like about me or good about me, which happens rarely, I would say, But when they reminisce, uh, it's always about something that I never thought of, some quality or ability or way about me 
that has nothing to do with putting on airs. So just think about that if you care to. Just try to be comfortable in your own skin. And if you can do that, then you'll be cool without even trying, man. So in order to be cool, you have to not care about being cool. And remember that you are leaving an impression on people. And you're doing it in ways that you may have no idea that you are. Okay, now this is from sitasfire.com. Grinda Sheth, the author, grew up in Sweden and was raised on stories from the ancient Indian lore, such as the Mahabharat, Ramayana, and Bhagavad Purana. She became an avid reader in her early teens and has never stopped. She finds that the fantasy genre explores the truth with the most imaginative depth. Brinda lived in South India for five years, learning classical dance at Kala Shetra, one of the foremost institutes for Bharatanatyam. During that time, she wrote Prince Ram, Son of the Solar Dynasty. The book received an IP award and an honorable mention in the New York Book Show. It was the seedling of the Sita's Fire trilogy. Grinda is fluent in Swedish, familiar with Hindi and Sanskrit, and has a degree in English from the University of Florida. She lives in Florida with her husband, three children, and extended family. The illustrator, Anna Porna Johansson, was born in Sweden as well, where she lived most of her life before relocating to the USA. Now, she is Brinda's mother. She was drawn to art in her early teens as a form of expression or release for her inner struggles. Wherever she has lived, her first priority has always been to set up a small art studio like an extension of her very being. Now, Anna's primary interest is to create art with devotion. She has a special passion for book illustration, her artwork is inspired by the mystical yoga tradition of ancient India, evident in the first children's book she illustrated, The Peaceable Forest. She lives with her husband in Florida, USA. She is the loving grandmother of three beloved grandchildren. And, and I know both of their husbands, and they're both quality and talented guys, just to let you know. Grinda's husband, Vishwambar Sheth, is a founding member of the band the Mayapuris. And Anna's husband is also a musician. And by the way, his name is Leonard Cohen. Of course, not the same Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Leonard Cohen. I find it interesting that there are two devotee musicians in the Alachua Hare Krishna community who have names of famous rock stars, one being Leonard Cohen and the other being Joe Walsh, who goes by the name Jagannath Charandas. So there's some fun facts for you. You can't say this show doesn't have any fun facts. Okay, before we go to the interview, and we will get there very soon, I promise you, we're going to hear a little excerpt of Brinda Sheth reading from their first book of the trilogy called Shadows of the Sun Dynasty. This time, the summons was unusually urgent. Ravana's pet son, Indrajit, was gathering his dark forces against the gods. Dasharat was transported within seconds from his throne up into the battlefield. He was outfitted with great haste by ethereal beings that moved so fast he saw no hands, 
no substantial form. Moments later, his army materialized behind him, transported in the same instant manner. He saw some of his men double over and wretch, unused to traveling at the speed of mind. From long experience, Dashrat knew he had only minutes to organize his troops, and without hesitation, he moved out among his men, calling out to the commanders of each section. Then he turned to face the enemy. The horizon was black with blood drinkers. The shining ones on Dashrat's side floated above the ground, emanating golden light. The enemy seemed to emerge from the darkest of hells. Dashrat was still not immune to their dreadful forms which obscured gender and age. Their deformities and behaviors made them appear like rabid dogs, when in truth many of them possessed superhuman powers and intelligence. Like parasites, they preyed on human flesh and blood. They were man-eaters, night-stalkers, and blood-drinkers, predators of all things good and uplifting. The light and the dark, the good and the bad, the beautiful and the terrifying, were never so starkly illuminated. You're listening to the Gargsville Podcast with your host, Gargs Allard. Today we have Brenda Sheth and her mother, Anna Johansson, on our show. They work together on a Ramayan trilogy. They are just about to release their third and final volume. Perhaps, Brenda, to start, you can tell us what the titles for the three volumes are. Okay, thanks, Garg, for having us. I've long been an admirer of your humor and insight, so this is a, an exciting opportunity to discuss with you. I appreciate so that. So our three books, the first... Yeah, thank you. The three books are... The first one is Shadows of the Sun Dynasty. The Ramayana, of course, uh, deals with Prince Ram, who is a prince of the Sun Dynasty. So the first one is Shadows of the Sun Dynasty, book one. Book two is Queen of Elements. And then our finale here coming out April 20th, our final book is Destroyer of Sorrow. And together we have named it the Sita's Fire Trilogy. And it's all available on our website, sitasfire.com. Anyone who listens to this can immediately go and, you know, look at my... The big selling point is my mom's beautiful, gorgeous watercolor illustrations. So you can, you know, while you tune in and listen here, you can go check out, you know, her website. We have a really beautiful gallery with a lot of the art artwork. So if you feel inspired, you can go and, and, and have a visual along with tuning into our discussion today. And what is her website? Sitasfire.com. So S-I-T-A-S, fire, F-I-R-E. So that has not only information on the trilogy, but also some of her art? Yeah, we have a, a gallery section where a lot of her art is there. Uh, from the books, of course, because she does, she's done other art also. But on the website, on the Sita's Fire website, there is a lot of uh, art from the book itself. Cool. We have a piece of, of your art, Anna, hanging in our home. It was gifted to us probably, yeah, yeah probably about, oh, geez. Time flies when you're uh, not paying attention. It might have been 15 or 20 years ago, something along those lines. 
<laughs> and it's beautiful. Is it? Uh, okay, I'm glad you like it. I often get the feedback. Uh huh. It's Gopal Krishna. He has a walking stick, and there's a yeah. he's with a calf, and he's like under a tree. Yeah, a I know this. Yeah, I I know this piece. It's one of my first pieces, and the original is hanging in a yoga studio in Philadelphia. Really? But uh, anyway, uh, my daughter mentioned the website, pitaspire.com. I do have some pieces of art there, but um, I, I have felt that there is a demand for me to share more with my art. So I'm building a simple website that will be up in two weeks. Cool. We'll look forward to it. And uh, what, what I will offer there, I will offer uh, print. For my art. And this website is called AnnaArt108.com. So that's A N N A A R T 108.com? Yes. Cool. <laughs> so yesterday was International Women's Day. Someone told me about it. Yes. And uh, I made a stupid joke that, you know, Valentine's Day I thought was Women's Day. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I totally understand. International Women's Day. I don't know if there's a National Women's Day. And you guys are both originally from Sweden. So there's the international aspect right there. And you're completing the Sita's Fire trilogy. So I think it's very apropos that I'm interviewing you both. Very powerful mother-daughter team. How did this all start? When did you become acquainted with the Ramayan? And you started out in Sweden, so maybe you could tell a little bit of, about your superheroing origins. Do you want to kick it off, Mama? Because, uh, you know, you're really the, the origin of this project. You know, we have um, different paths in life, and <clears throat> my path has been a little winding. And But there has been one thing that's been in the back of my mind for it started in the 90s. When I was asked to do illustrations for a children's book, Ramayan, by a friend of mine. So that's like, that planted the seed for this trilogy that is completed now, 25 years later. So I don't think I myself would have had like the motivation to continue to do this. There is, however, been a driving force in my life. And it has also, not without struggle, of course, but everything has lined up for me to be able to be the, say, creator or the the force behind that this trilogy became manifest. Uh-huh. It seems like it seems like it, it was something that was bound to be and I feel like now in retrospect I feel like it's been a great honor. I have learned so much. Me and my daughter, we have deepened our relationship a lot and it's been just an amazing journey because for me personally, this has been my art education to do this but because I didn't know anything about book illustrations. Although I always loved book illustrations since my childhood, but I, I didn't know anything about making book illustrations when I started to do the artwork for this Sita Fire. And not only that, I didn't have like a plan I even didn't have a writer. I didn't have a manuscript to start with. The manuscript manifested. I asked my daughter and she was like very young. She was like 19. 
at that time. She hadn't written anything, just graduated from... Had you graduated from college then, Linda? Um, or she did come later? I think I was. I, I think I just well, had just started college, yeah. Where did you go yeah. to school? I was exclusively schooled in uh, these, you know, Hare Krishna schools run by Krishna devotees first in Sweden. Then here in Alatra, I went to a school called the Vaishnav Academy for Girls, a boarding school for girls until I was 17. And then after that, I transferred to uh, the local college here, Santa Fe Community College, which now has become Santa Fe College. And uh, after that, I went to India and I, I went to a school called Kalakshetra for Bharatanatyam for Indian classical dance. And I was there for five years. And that was really... Um, the main time when this project really started for me, I had written a sample before that for the publishers on my mom's request. But um, the first book, the first version of this book was written, you know, during that time, during my dance studies in India, which is pretty crazy in retrospect, because at that time I didn't have, I didn't have my own laptop or my own system or anything. So I would go to this, they have in India, they have these internet cafes where you log on, you know, like kind of like going to the library and, and logging onto a public computer. So I would go on the weekends to these internet cafes and transcribe my notes. And what year kind of was interesting this? process when I look back. This was in uh, 2003 to 2008. I was in, I was there for five years. Wow. And how long did it take you to write? I mean, these books are big and they're beautiful. They're like, I don't know, about 400 pages each or something along those lines. How long did it take you to mm-hmm. write those? Well, I mean, I was, you know, I wasn't writing full time. I was writing it in, in bursts and bits and, and, and here and there interspersed with, you know, dancing and life and also a lot of, you know, uncertainty, I guess, because it was a very intimidating project to take on. The Ramayana is such a revered beloved story and there I was you know just in my early 20s and grappling with life and all the big questions in life and then you know trying to work with my mom's request to also retell the story so I was also just very internally working with a lot of my questions being a a writer being an artist being a devotee you know there was just so much going on so yeah so it wasn't a very it wasn't you know quite a linear process like oh I started this at the beginning of the year and then it took you know a year or whatever it was kind of an on and off um, project but uh, what my mom and I discovered is even you know after our part is done say you know I complete the manuscript and even if she completes the art and there is a huge part of publishing that you know that we have learned as we as we as we went along, we we learned you know there is just the design process takes so much time, the editing, the back and forth with the editors, and you know even finding a publisher, and then we had to switch publishers. So it's been quite a journey even in that aspect, you know, bringing it even when our artistic part was complete. You know, so I would say the writing actually often went fairly was fairly quick for me. You know, I would produce this manuscript fairly quickly but then you know all the other parts really took, took so much time you know in a learning curve but somehow or other you amassed all of this story and first of all i, I want to ask another question a follow-up question but i want to ask your mother anna when your daughter brinda yes. agreed to do this i don't know if you had to twist her arm or she agreed readily or what the process was but how did that make you feel 
I blackmailed her. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's, that's no, effective. <laughs> you know, honestly, I, we haven't really talked about this. I think I have asked her, but I don't really know why she took it up because it's like I don't think neither her nor me realized what it would be, what it would become, you know, but it, it's been like a such, a such a steep learning curve for both of us and I think she has found her voice more. I mean, that's also take, it, it has taken a... A long time, so of course, life also teaches you lessons and helps you to understand yourself and your place in the world and everything. But uh, I, I feel that she has refined her skills as an author, and I think she's very happy. I think she feels satisfied with that because she loves writing. I don't know any other person that uh, writes. She's journaling. She's She's been journaling for years, and she's doing journaling every day, religiously, you know. So uh, I hope that she will, and she loves to read also, and she's uh, majoring now in English literature, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rinda? Yeah. Yes, that's right. So this, this is perhaps one of her greatest outlets in her life is like reading and writing and um, perhaps you know sometimes we act on things maybe we are not completely clear why we act on things and perhaps that's what happened with Brenda she took up this challenge to write it's a difficult it's a difficult literature to write for more than uh, readers here in the west uh-huh. to make it accessible and at the same time, you know, like, we, there is a great Ramayan storytelling tradition, so it gives room for creative writing and embellishment, of course. But to do that at the same time, keeping the core of Valmiki Ramayan, keeping that at the core and basing the whole story on Sanskrit scholars English translation. I think it's pretty impressive. Oh, I agree. It's very impressive. Um, you know, maybe, Brenda, you can talk a little bit about the background of the Ramayan. From what I understand, and I listened on Audible to the introduction of the first volume, and mm-hmm. you were saying there's a, there's many different versions of, of the Ramayan. It's not quite as big as the Mahabharat, but it is a big piece of literature and uh valmiki great sage valmiki wrote it uh eons ago i don't even know if it's traceable how long uh at least it it was uh it was narrated and it to me for someone who is an aspiring writer it seems almost overwhelming to 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 take all this information and you know there is probably so many embellishments along the way how to keep the essence and at the same time, the way you were able to weave in your real, your own personal realizations and your own personal spiritual stature into it, I thought uh, was very impressive. So I'm just wondering, did you feel overwhelmed at the beginning? Did you just kind of, uh, how did it all work out? I mean, did you become the characters to an extent? 
Did you walk in or walk around trying to think like them and trying to imagine if this happened, how I would respond? I mean, what was the whole process? Well, thank you for, for your um, kind encouragement there. You know, it's, I'll just uh, start at the beginning kind of, you know, because I was raised with the Ramayan story. As a child, we really weren't encouraged or even allowed to, you know, watch TV or movies very much. So I had very limited access to, you know, Disney movies or whatever cartoons or stories that maybe other Western kids would have been immersed in. So I was very immersed in the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, stories from other Vedic texts, um, the Bhagavatam, and also these devotional uh, Bollywood films, something we would watch on repeat. So they were very much the background to my childhood. So I feel like I had a deep immersion in the work already. So it was very familiar and very like something that I had already an intimate kind of knowledge of. So it wasn't overwhelming in that sense. But where I did feel overwhelmed is, you know, I was raised very much with respect like kind of this um, undeviating respect for the word in a way, you know, this, this, the scripture is perfect. It should not be changed. Uh And so, so I had this assumption that, you know, that there was one authoritative version of the Ramayana. And so that was really intimidating to then face the question, okay, well, why am I even retelling this story? If it's already been told and it's been told, so beautifully and you know so why am I even doing this this project you know so that was my initial you know trepidation really but the more I learned the more I studied the more I researched the more I learned of the Ramayana just all my preconceived notions were completely shattered because like my mom already said the Ramayana is is basically a storytelling tradition I mean like you also said it, it first it was an oral tradition that then was written down by Valmiki who is the oldest known poet who wrote the story down. But then after him, every, you know, every author, every poet who who came to their mind would then kind of enter into the story and begin to solve different uh, questions or different aspects that maybe seem problematic. Uh So I could see that, wow, this is, this is a, you know, I'm just joining this, this tradition of retelling the story and then looking at different aspects that maybe feel troubling and then figuring out ways to make it make sense. So that was really empowering when I realized that I wasn't being that subversive. I wasn't really being, you know, I wasn't really doing something entirely blasphemous. You know, there was, uh, <laughs> there was, it, it was a known path. It's, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, it has a very strong support of, of doing this. And then of course, you know, now, that English is becoming such a dominant language. There, are, it is being retold in English by various people. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm joining a particular genre of, of writers. When did you start so speaking? That's one aspect. I'm, I'm sorry. I was just wondering well, when you when you started speaking English. Oh, well, um, you know, I grew up on an Iskan farm, a Krishna farm in Sweden. So there was always a lot of international influence going on. And my father is from America originally. He does speak Swedish to me. But, you know, when he was mad or wanted to scold me and wanted to increase his authority, he would definitely speak in English. Okay. Um, so, you know, so I always was 
exposed to English, but I didn't start speaking English on a daily basis until I was 14, which is when I moved to Florida to attend the, the Vaishnava Academy for Girls. And I remember being quite uh, silent for many months, just kind of absorbing the new, you know, new language. And I, it was a big shift for me to, you know, stop speaking Swedish and start speaking English. So Swedish definitely is, uh, you know, a very strong mother tongue for me. But yeah, I want to go back to you were asking, you know, how did I enter into the world of the characters? Was I, you know, imagining, imagining them and... right. And for me, it was, you know, like I said, once I, I broke through this area of feeling uncertain and feeling, yeah, questioning what I was doing, the more clarity I got, the more clear I became on what I was contributing to it. And I especially found that I was very fascinated by the female characters because they they just aren't very present in the text. You know, they come in and out and it's a very male-dominated Story. It's about, you know, Ram's father, King Dashrath, and it's about Ram and his brothers, and then Hanuman, who's, the, you know, the flying monkey, a supernatural god creature, you know, and all around good Ravana, guy. the villain of this. Yeah, exactly. He's probably the most beloved character of the entire Ramayana, I would say, Hanuman. But then, even, you know, a villain like Ravan, he gets he gets a fairly uh, good amount of stage time also, even compared to the female characters. So I could see that there was a really huge missing piece for me. And, and that's been my main preoccupation kind of like really trying to bring the female characters more into the story. And because there is so little known about them in the original text that allowed me to, you know, really, or forced me, in fact, to, you know, really enter this creative, imaginative realm. But I really tried my best to always keep in mind the things that I did know about them from the original text and, you know, some of the subsequent texts also, you know, like, you know, there, there have been other really influential tellings of the Ramayana. Like, for example, there's a poet, Tulsi Das. He wrote it in, in uh, Hindi dialect, Avad. And so his uh, telling of the Ramayana has been extremely influential, called Ram Charitmana. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I, I looked at, at those two, but I wanted to make sure that, you know, what I was kind of creating or bringing forth in terms of the female characters and even the male characters would would resonate, you know, to those who know the story, the, the know the Ramayana, that they can read this and, and it resonates with truth in the sense of, wow, this, this is very plausible. This, this kind of rings true to what we know of the character. So I always had that in the back of my mind, even as I was very open to this uh, creative uh, exploration of the character's motivations. Why, are they, why did they end up doing these things? And I really wanted us as readers, as, yeah, as readers of the story to be with, the characters and have us understand their motivations because the Sanskrit way of telling a story is often, you know, at a climactic moment, a, a character that you've never even heard of, heard of will suddenly come in and just change everything. Uh-huh. And then the story takes another turn and it's very plot driven. 
And so there isn't uh, very much access to, you know, the inner lives of the characters or even their motivations or, you know, there isn't too much backstory or, or explanation. So, you know, just there, just the storytelling format of the, this great Sanskrit story is so different from, you know, what we expect today with the novel. So already just in terms of, you know, what we want from a story, there was just so much to rework just from that angle. And then also, like I said, bringing in the, the female perspective has been my main meditation. One thing I liked about it is I noticed like some of the characters who may have been engaged in some suspect activity or didn't have the purest motivations. They weren't painted just as bad people. You know, it's, it wasn't just all black and white. Uh, you know, you, you seem to be able to show, you know, the good and the bad in them uh, simultaneously. Yeah, that was really important to me because I think a basic tenet of good writing is that even if you don't agree with the character, like say you are writing a villain, even if you don't agree, you should still be able to understand, oh, this is why they're behaving in this way. This is why they're going to this uh, violent behavior. You know, there should be, we want to feel like we're at least understanding the cause and effect of that character's psyche. So that was very important to me that, yeah, some of these, you know, sort of villains of the story that they also, you know, that we understand their motivations and that we can even, you know, nod our heads and, oh, wow, yes, I get you. I, I understand why you would have behaved in this way. Cool. I was wondering how much of the structure of it did you base on the ninth canto of the Bhagavatam, which may be... Um, seem to be more reliable in the sense of um, uh, the pastimes of Lord Ramachandra. Yeah, right. That that it contains a very encapsulated version, very bare bones. Right. So I definitely, I definitely looked at that and I referenced that a couple of times. But what, you know, my main, where I was really, the text I was working with the most was Valmiki's Ramayana. And that's the text that I sort of, decided to stick to and, and demonstrate most allegiance to. So that was really the main, the, the main text that I, I worked with. Isn't there also something uh, like a, a Tamil tradition? Absolutely. Yes. There is the, the Kamban Ramayan. The, the poet's name was Kamban and Iramavataram is the name. And uh, usually it's just called Kamban Ramayan, you know, for, is that a derivative of Valmiki's? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a later, yeah, no, it's a later telling. And so, you know, it's actually, you know, for those who know the Ramayana, I can just give an example. Uh, you know, there's this scene where Surpanak, this kind of witchy character comes and she's attracted to the hero and wants to seduce him and like that. And in Valmiki, Surpanak is, is just a hideous looking, you know, kind of, vampire creature witch type person and so it's sort of a comic scene because she's approaching the hero and saying oh why don't you marry me and you're so handsome and you know look at me we are make a perfect match and it's kind of you know this this comic sort of bizarre moment in the story but then what Kamban did he decided oh no I'm going to transform transform her into you know a shapeshifter that has the ability to take on a very attractive form so 
in Tamban Ramayan, she transforms, uh, she transforms herself into this, you know, gorgeous, beautiful uh, woman and then approaches him like that so that her, uh, you know, ploy to seduce him actually seems more plausible. And then that, that uh, has become so much, uh, you know, a part of the story that most people just think, most people who know the Ramayan, they think, oh, yeah, Sorpan actually transformed herself into a beautiful woman and tried to seduce the hero. Uh-huh. You know, that's just become part of part of the canon, so to say. And yeah, when I was first coming around the so temple, every, every I'm sorry. Well, I just wanted to say when I was first coming around the temple, I would see some of these ITV videos and there was a New Vrindavan presentation <laughs> of the Ramayan in. How do you pronounce your name? Chirpanak. Oh, Chirpanak. OK, I'm sorry. It was very comical. I mean, they just kind of laughed at her. You know, and they then they cut off her nose and her ears or whatever. And it just didn't, it just seemed, it, it seems the shapeshifter thing is more plausible. I mean, what do I know? So you use that in your, in your trilogy. No, I decided not to use that actually, because this is one of the problematic scenes of the story. You know, uh, oh, scholars you, who have come to the text or. You, you left no, out the scene. I, I is that what you're say, saying? You just left the scene out? No, I, I kept the scene, but I, no, I kept, I, I stayed to, I stayed true to Valmiki's version of it, which is oh. that she does approach them in her hag, hag-like form. I mean, she doesn't transform into a beautiful woman to approach them. Okay. Okay. And, and yeah, I mean, scholars who have analyzed this particular tale or even, you know, people who are just readers of the Ramayan, they have reacted to this, like, you know, uh, brutalization or violent act towards a woman, you know, why did they have to react so aggressively to her and cut off her nose and her ears? Right. Um, you know, and, and a lot of times it is treated as some kind of comical interlude, like, oh, look, she was so crazy, like she just went up to them and then they, you know, it's treated like a comical, comical thing almost, but yeah, I, I kept, I stuck to Vamiki's version because I felt it was important to highlight the fact that she was a demoness and she was a threat to them because she, ultimately she becomes so enraged and, and threatens to devour Sita, the, the princess of the story. She, you know, actually rushes at her and wants to kill her to, you know, she's Ram's mate and she wants to get her out of the way so that she can you know, take that place. So I, for me, it was important to retain her kind of demonic side to then justify, okay, well, this is why they did resort to this uh, violent punishment of her because she was actually, you know, about to kill Sita. So I didn't really want to treat it like a, a comical, like for me, there I didn't want it to be this comical thing of a beautiful lady coming up and fluttering her eyelids and, you know, and then being rejected and this and okay. this, you know, I wanted to. So yeah. the important thing to know is that she wasn't a normal human being. She had, from our point of view, she had, she was like a supernatural being and she was dangerous. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because if you just did that to a normal person, whether they were male, female, you know, whatever age it would be considered to be cruel you know so very much yeah yeah. i mean nowadays now i mean you know and this is also a small illustration of you know looking at something from our modern lens you know nowadays if you were to cut off somebody's nose and ears that would be 
you know, gruesome, horrific, like terrible. Like, I mean, it would just be, you know, so gruesome if we heard of that being done now. But at that time, it actually was a common punishment, especially done to women who were adulterous. So, and, and you know, a woman who was adulterous, you know, aggressively sexual, I, I, I guess, which Sorpanak in some way fits in that category because she was approaching them with her, you know, sexual desire. And then, again, I've learned this from reading scholarly texts. They say, yeah, the, the punishment that they give her was, gave her was aligned with that time's punishment for women of her character. So, you know, something I can't fully relate to, but it, it, it was a punishment at that time. They would actually cut off uh, women's noses and ears as a punishment for sexual transgression. So, yeah, that's kind of super brutal. Jeez, Louise. Yeah, yeah, it's it's intense. Go ahead, but, uh, Anna. My understanding is why it's not it's not it's not like uh, <clears throat> uh, he approached because he, I I think it's quite interesting. You know, I can imagine Surpanaka she's lurking around there in the forest and she sees Brahm and Lakshman and. Uh, Perhaps she had evil intentions towards them. She wanted to kill them. But when you see the beauty of Ram and Lakshman, I think she just plainly fell in love with them, you know. And she approaches them in that spirit of being in love. And that's not any any fault of a woman to fall in love with somebody and approach a man. It's not that they get punished for, for an approach like that, a sexual approach. I, I can't imagine that, but why? What they were punished for is that she became aggressive. Okay. You know, and she wanted to attack Sita. And if they hadn't intervened, Sita would have been killed by her. So it it kind of they didn't kill they didn't kill Surpanakya, but they did uh, cut off her ears and her nose because who is uh, Sita? You know, she might be a princess in the Moon Dynasty, but her internal nature, which Rinda also touches upon, is that she's uh, a goddess with very, with powers, you know, uh-huh. and you cannot, it's an elevated spiritual personality, so you send a, a, and want to kill a spiritual elevated personality like that, that has consequences. You cannot, you cannot just let it go unpunished. So, what did her brother... That's my take on it. Uh, okay. <laughs> and it just makes me think, uh, and I can't remember, what did her brother, Ravana, have to say about all this? Well, I'm a, I'm a little influenced because, because Brinda, she introduced me to this genre, you know, of making uh, ancient uh, sacred literature, making them accessible in a novel form. So, I actually read uh, from its... Uh, uh, Indian lady, she wrote about Surpanakya, and she makes Sur- Surpanakya uh, the whole, that he was the whole cause of the she manipulated Ravana into the whole thing to kidnap Sita, and maybe she did. She was actually the cause. I mean, she doesn't have such a good, a large place in Valmiki's Ramayana, but this uh, ugly looking uh, princess of Lankya, she 
manipulated her brother because she wanted to revenge the two Ram and Lakshman what they had done to her. Uh-huh. It's so amazing these these stories. They have such depth and they have so much wisdom and it seems like okay, Brenda and me we are done with the Sita's uh, Fire trilogy, but it seems like we have just scraped a little on the surface. You can you can dig so much deeper into these ancient Indian stories. They are so rich and uh, dynamic. Well, I think it it's already it it felt it feels pretty deep for me. It doesn't just seem like it's just a just a retelling of the story. You know, um, it, it's like um, in the new book for. For example, when they get kind of get into uh, the inner thoughts of Sita in the first chapter when she is held by Ravana, um, it's it's pretty intense, actually. Thanks. I'm glad to hear it's all intense because I think it was very intense. So what, what kind of state of mind do you have to be in in order to write that ch- chapter, for example? I mean, I kind of have to agree with my mom in the sense that I feel like as much as I, I try to really understand that intensity and what it would feel like to be a woman um, abducted the way she was very, very violently and to be torn away so, so brutally. By someone extremely powerful, you know, obviously. Not, yeah, yeah. And I haven't experienced anything like that myself. So, you know, obviously it's, there, there is zero um, autobiographical in, you know, information there or material for me to, to go there. But I have to say for, for quite a while, I was, I was very disturbed by this idea of being abducted and, you know, in, in news and stuff, uh, there are stories every so often of, you know, women who have been held captive by some, some, some sick, sick man. And, you know, and then finally they escape 10 years later and like that. So wow, I did, or, or even just abduction narratives by people who have been kidnapped for shorter periods of time and what it, what it feels like, the, the kind of duress that they're under during this, this time. I definitely was just, uh, you know, researching that and really trying to understand what their psychology is of, of being under someone's power. And especially in, in this case, somebody who is a sexual predator, which Ravana was, I mean, his interest in Sita was very devious. So, I mean, you know, so it's a very intense atmosphere to be in. Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, so definitely it wasn't light and fluffy. And I do feel like sometimes often, you know, this chunk of Sita's life is, is just, gets over in a sentence or two. Oh, she was, you know, a captain in Lanka for a little while and then she was rescued. So I kind of focused more on, okay, well, what was that time really like for her? I mean, what, what did, yeah, how did she survive? Well, how did she survive that time really without, you know, snapping? Yeah, this part of the, this, this part of the Ramayan, Sita's captivity and her, state of being and how she conducted herself. That's one of the most intriguing parts for me of the Ramayana. Uh-huh. I just love that part. It's very, very intriguing. And it has been 
Yeah, I'm also surprised that it hasn't been explored more than, I don't know, there might be some books out there about it, but I don't know, Brinda, do you know, you know more about literature than I do. Yeah, I mean, now there are more, uh, there are a couple, just a handful of stories now we told in English that do either speak from Sita's point of view and, and you know, tell the Ramayan from her perspective. So that is happening now. It's it's part of this big, you know, shift that we're collectively going through where we are empowering the female voice more and, and, and there is a hunger for that perspective. So it's, you know, Sita is definitely rising up again. Um, that said, I have not seen, it's been heartening for me to see, well, what I, what I am offering and what I offered with Destroyer of Sorrow, it is a unique unique uh, perspective that I haven't seen done elsewhere yet, you know, so I do think it is a unique work and, and I'm excited to, you know, hear the response from readers, both those who, you know, know their minds to see how they, how it receive, how they receive it, how it lands. And then also, you know, for people, I, I think our work personally, I feel our work is perfect even for people who don't know their mind because, it is written in a very inviting way. It doesn't require any pre-knowledge of the Ramayana or anything like that. It's, it's written, you know, with a Western audience in mind. So, yeah, no, I do think I do think what my mom and I have done is unique because, of course, also you have done, Mama, you've done illustrations of Sita that are so beautiful, so evocative, and really capture her kind of, isolation and loneliness and i have never seen pictures like that either of her i think that the text and the pictures go along very well together they enhance each other and it and it makes the book seem to come to life also like some of the um descriptions of the more subtle realms of existence whether it's you know uh, like the heavenly spheres or the the astral realm or just the psychic movements there, they, they make everything, they make it seem real. It does not sound ephemeral. You know, when you read that, you, you can, mm-hmm. you can connect um, that there's a much larger part of reality than most people see. And it's really not supernatural or mystical so much. You, you kind of seem to be able to take away the veil of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate hearing that from you because I know that you're, you're a bit psychic and you're very tuned into, you know, more the ephemeral realm. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad that it rings true for you, that you feel like it resonates with some form of like, it makes sense to you. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. You're welcome. I don't, I don't think that I'm psychic per se. I'm, I, I think that when you get to a point of being open to more of what's around you, then you just gradually become more aware of it. But you have to be open to its existence, mm. you know. If you're not, then you're just going to live mm. in, you, you create your own echo chamber, so to speak, you know, or your tunnel vision. Well, it's um, funny because my mom, my mom is a much more spiritual person than I am. She's very <laughs> open, you know, she has a very rich inner life and she's very spiritual and has spiritual visions and uh-huh. very a deep person, my mom. But I feel like she is very open to that world, but between the two of us, I'm the one, I'm like, you know, I'm kind of scared of the dark and I have a sense of like, you know, creatures, ghosts, I guess you could say, you know, I, 
You're sensitive to I'm that stuff. I'm apprehensive of, of those kind of things. So I'm, uh-huh. My daughter is particularly uh, sensitive also. And she, if I start talking mm-hmm. about s- stuff, sometimes she said, Dad, don't, don't say that. Let's not talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> we could go on and on. And there's so many aspects of the Ramayan that uh, I love to talk about. And I'm... And that's not really what this podcast has been about to me. It's been more about the beautiful trilogy that you guys created. Um, but like I was saying, we could, we could go on and on about it. But I think that we could maybe do that another time <laughs> because uh, we don't have a lot of time right yeah. now. So could you let people know how they could get their, their, uh, their hands on these beautiful books? Yeah, the best way is to go to our website sitasfire.com S-I-T-A-S fire.com and it has tons of illustrations and all the books are there and the information about my mom and I everything is there so sitasfire.com and we'd love to hear from you to you know let us know let us know your thoughts in the, the, the very first volume is available on Audible I know and probably other platforms as well. Yeah, is that's that correct? true. It's exclusively available on Audible, Shadows of the Sun Dynasty. You can Google my name too, Brenda Sheth. I'm working on getting the other two up. Takes a little while to record on Eric and myself. But yeah, the book one is there on Audible. Yeah, you did a very good and they're job. They're all available as, as, on Kindle. And, oh, thank you. They're available on, on Kindle and, and, you know, e-versions too so cool and what is the release date um the two first are already available and and book three is also available for pre-order and it will be released april 20th so just a month or so awesome well thank you very much brinda anna do you have anything you'd like to say anna before we say goodbye (laughs) yeah it's nice to be here with you i uh, only see you here now and then on facebook and it was nice to have this little hangout with you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. You, you might have time to go for a walk. It's still light outside. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's still nice out and it's not dark yet. Yeah. You got to keep moving the body. You get older, you know. We live right by Depot Park. So my wife I, and I walk down there a lot at night. It's a nice little walk. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, thank you, guards, for having us. I, I also feel we could go on and on. It was super fun talking to you. Thank you. You're listening to the Gargsville Podcast with your host, Gargs Allard. This is from the first chapter of The Destroyer of Sorrow, Volume 3 of the Sita's Fire Trilogy. The sky is my hair, fire my eyes, the earth my feet, wind my magic, in this expansive Shakti, my very breath. All the animals of the forest have fled, but an owl with piercing green eyes witnesses my transformation. Not until this crisis do I know myself, and yet it's not enough. With one motion, he pulls his hand into a fist, closing me up and pulling me to him. Just like that, I'm silenced. My Shakti is new to me. His Maya is ancient and practiced. I'm bound with invisible cords, gagged by a ghostly force, held motionless by Maya beyond perception. I'm reduced again to a woman abducted, torn ruthlessly from my home. As he pries me away, his hot breath threatens me. Like so many women before me, I have no choice. I stop resisting and let go. 
as he tears me away from the carny kara tree. The skin of my inner arms rips. Chunks of my hair are wrenched loose. Yellow blossoms rain down on us, princess and blood drinker, woman and abductor, Sita and Ravana. I hate the heavens for marking his act with this sign of victory. The flowers flutter by me, caressing my skin, never to be looked at again without shrinking. I struggle against his maya that binds me. I call out to the wind, stop him. I call out to fire, burn him. Earth, water, sky, save me. Only silence. The fire in my soul is doused. The elements bow to him, not me. I need Ram. I shout at the top of my lungs, Ram. No answer. How about that for a cliffhanger, folks? That's from the third volume of the Sita's Fire trilogy called The Destroyer of Sorrow, authored by Brinda Sheth and illustrated by her mother, Anna Johansson. You can pre-order the book now at sitasfire.com or order the first volume, Shadows of the Sun Dynasty, or the second volume, Queen of the Elements. Again, all on the website, sitasfire.com. The old dog whispered himself, old Uncle Hound, here to tell you about a brand new product of mine called Old Uncle Hound's Vegan Dog Treats. It's just like the treats our dog's ancestors used to eat here in North Central Florida in the 70s. Only they're vegan, and they taste good for both dogs and humans, especially old hippies. Mm-hmm. Just munching on one right now. Tastes good like a vegan dog treat should. Don't eat a full bag of them or your dog might get angry at you and scratch some Lyme disease ticks all over your body. Old Uncle Hound's vegan dog treats are now available in fine pet stores everywhere. Dateline, Boston, 1986. At 3 a.m., I wake up with a headache the size of Gibraltar. I duly chastise myself for not drinking more water. I thought of some people who have been lost to the foggy past. Another reminder that no scene in this earth movie lasts. I was a young brahmachari trying hard to be fixed. I turned 22 in August of the year of 1986. Earlier that year, flew to India for Mahaprabhu's 500th. Felt queasy in Mayapur. In Vrindavan, I got downright sick. I had made sandwiches for 10 of us baked the bread from scratch, offered one to a swami in Heathrow who said, you slice them too fat. It was the year of Roger Clemens, the year of Larry Bird. But on 72 Commonwealth Avenue, it all seemed fleeting and absurd. Just after the seas won it, Mr. Len Bias buried his heart in the snow, his face on the Herald two early summer mornings in a row. He was born the year before I was, but died before age 23. I walked by that newspaper stand with my fingers tight on my joppa beads. I would see the punk rockers congregate around Copley Square. I take refuge at the Boston Public Library and listen to Al Stewart's time passages in there. Some of those girls joined the temple, but I hardly noticed or cared. By October, Bill Buckner's effigy was burning in Kenmore Square. 
I'd walk around the Charles River, and on the Cambridge side, I saw Tracy Chapman and Conan O'Brien. Joe Rogan was also living there around that time. I don't remember him, but then again, I was living deep inside my mind. Beantown was beautiful and rough and put hair on my chest. But Radagopi Balava's prashadam was loaded with curd and simply seemed like the best. By the courtesy of Lud, they stood in floral opulence. In the mornings and evenings, they took away my breath. There were so many characters, I have named but a few. Some remain on this plane for now. Some have long left the queue. When I finally write these chapters, they will all come back to life. Before this flickering film we're in gets the final cut from the senior editor's knife. You're listening to the Gargsville Podcast with your host, Gargs Allard. Hello, this is Gargs Allard, host of Power Pop Portal, the Gainesville Grooves, and the Gargsville Radio Hour. I'm here to tell you you can become just like me with my brand new 777 diet program as seen on infomercials everywhere. I developed the 777 diet program to make my life simpler and yours can become simpler too. I will personally show you how to gain 7 pounds in 7 days on only $7 a day. That's 7 pounds in 7 days for only $7 a day. You must not be averse, however, to a diet consisting primarily of pizza and ice cream. That's the 777 program available at Walmart, Walgreens, and across the street at CVS. Tell them Garg's Allard sent you. Well, thanks for stopping by for another installment of the Gargsville podcast. This was number seven. Sometimes we look back 20, 30 years ago at our pictures and we think, or we say, wow, look how I was back then. If we live another 20 or 30 years, we're going to do that again. Yet right now we think that this is who we are. This is me, or this is you, or this is us. But perhaps we're the same person that we were 20 or 30 years ago, and we will be the same person 20 or 30 years from now. In advanced spiritual texts around the world, this phenomena is described as the difference between the temporary changing material body and the eternal constant spirit soul. So I'm just going to quote one verse. This is from the Bhagavad Gita, the translation as it is, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. This is the first original Macmillan translation. Chapter 2, verse 13. Dahino sminyata dehe komorum yovanam jara, tata dehantara praptir diras tatra namuyati. As the embodied soul continuously passes in this body from childhood, I'm throwing in the childhood there, it says boyhood, to youth to old age, the soul similarly passes into another body at death. The sober Excuse me, <laughs> that's a Jayadvaita Swami version. The self-realized soul is not bewildered by such a change. So there you go. Once again, I'd like to thank our guest, Brenda Sheth, and her mother, Anna Porna Johansson, for appearing on our show today. Thank you. On our next show, we will hopefully have as our guest, Mr. Travis Atria, frontman for the critically acclaimed rock band in Gainesville favorite, 
Morning Bell, a band that has released six albums and a number of EPs and has performed at both Bonnaroo and South by Southwest. He is also a member of the popular Beatles cover band, The Shitty Beatles, and a member of another project with Shitty Beatles bandmate Colin Whitlock, a soul funk band called The Slims. In addition, and there's more, Travis is an accomplished music journalist and author. His latest book, Better Days Will Come Again, chronicles the epic life of Arthur Briggs, known as the Louis Armstrong of France, who performed with Josephine Baker and who also survived four years in a Nazi prison camp. Travis is also the co-author of Traveling Soul, which came out in 2016, the first comprehensive bio of soul icon Curtis Mayfield, which he wrote in an authorized fashion with Curtis's son. We'll hopefully touch on many or all of those things, but specifically talk about Travis's first solo LP, which is due to drop on April 2nd, called Moon Brain. So we look forward to that. I thought it would be cool to end this show with a song about the pastimes of Lord Ramachandra that the author of Sita's Fire, Brinda Sheth, accompanied her husband on today on their Sita's Fire Instagram account. It's called Ramachandra Raghavira. And if you know Vish's father, Bhadra, I think you'll see how Vish inherited Bhadra's great vocal abilities. Bhadra once told me that when he was young, he always wanted to become the next Ray Charles or something to that effect. And anyone who has heard him sing would probably agree that he's become a lot like the transcendental version of Ray Charles. So anyway, here's his son, Vishwambar, and Vish's wife, Brinda. Until next time, see ya. Hare Krishna.
once again float off into different frequencies, the night dreams and the daydreams. Until the next time we meet again in Gargsville.